MSW Media. This is Harry Lennox from the Justice League, and you are listening to A Great Injustice. Well, pour yourself a glass, sit for a spill. It's time to have some fun. Let's do a little thinking, some picking and a drinking. But this is what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. Welcome to the show. I'm Dan Dunn. This is exciting. Thank you. Thank you for being here. All right, all right, all right. All right, all right, all right. Got an exciting program for you today. Coming up just a few minutes, I'm going to be chatting with Luca Piscina. All right, I already chatted with him. I chatted with him a while ago. He is the winemaker at Barbersville Vineyards in Virginia. One of the probably the greatest winemaker in Virginia right now, Luca Pashina. I actually went to the winery and spoke to him. I'm going to roll that interview coming up in just a few minutes. And we're going to talk about Virginia wine and the role that it played in the development of wine in America. And that's also coming up in just a few. And then maybe later in the show, I'll tell you about some, you know, screw late, screw maybe for sure. Uh, I'm going to tell you about some new products, new stuff to drink. Because what are what are we drinking? I mean, you don't know unless I help you out and tell you, right? That's coming up too. Uh, as always, I invite you to follow on the social media at the Imbiber on Twitter and Instagram at WWD underscore podcast on Instagram. That's the podcast's own account. And I got to let you know the podcast goes crazy sometimes just putting up boob shots and whatever. It's nuts. So be forewarned. If you want to send questions, comments, I invite you to do that. You can even email me audio file question, which I'll play on the show, to info at whatwerdrinking.com, info at whatwerdrinking.com. And someone did just that. That's right. That's right. We got listener voicemail. Uh, and I want to get to that right now. Let's let's check it out. Let's see what the what the listeners are wondering about right now. Hey, Dan. Uh, hey, man, it's Jimmy. Dude, <laughs> big fan of the show, man. Big fan. Uh, just calling to see what's going on. Just check it in, see what's going on. Thanks, man. Oh, okay. Well, what, what's going on? All right, well, that's a good question, Jimmy. I People don't ask me that often. A lot, a lot of times they go, oh, what should I drink? Or where should I go hang out? What's the best city for beer? And Things like that. But they don't just ask me what's going on, so I appreciate that. Um, well, let's see. I went on a boat this past weekend. That's right. On a boat out in the Marina del Rey, California. Did a little drinking. Boat drinks. It's an interesting thing, boat drinks. You know, they're not all created equal. You have to really put some thought into what you're drinking when you're on a boat. Like martinis, for instance, are excellent in almost any setting. But if you Serve a martini on the choppy seas. It's like inviting Gary Busey to deliver the commencement address at your kid's preschool. It's a it's an interesting choice, but invariably it's going to get real messy. Beer would probably be the ultimate boat drink. It's ideal when you're partying on a yacht or you're trolling for bluefish. On a Boston whaler, wine too is a good option, except on a fishing boat. 
mixed drinks. There's only a few, I think, make the cut. Five, maybe? What I was drinking the other day was a dark and stormy. Yeah. Scholarly drunkards uh, that listen to this show might recall that the earliest recorded mention of rum can be found in a Siemens logbook entry from Barbados back in 1651. Back then, they called rum Kill Devil. It was, quote, a hot, hellish, and terrible liquor made from molasses. So naturally, it was only a matter of time before someone thought, hey, let's mix this crap with ginger beer and throw a party. And that's your dark and stormy. There's two ounces of dark rum. Uh, You're supposed to use goslings. Two ounces of that, three ounces of ginger beer, half ounce of lime juice. You put that in an ice-filled Collins glass, you stir it, and there's your dark and stormy. You could also do a French 75, but do you want to do it in a sippy cup on the boat. It might sound dainty, but this is a deceptively strong marriage of gin and bubbly. And it's named after a gun that the French used in World War One. The French 75 is two ounces of your favorite London dry gin, a half an ounce of lemon juice, teaspoon of sugar, dry sparkling wine, chilled. You shake the gin, the lemon juice, and the sugar over ice. You strain it into a... Sippy cup in this case, and you put some champagne in there. French 75 was a favorite of one of this previous century's most celebrated macho men, Ernest Miller Hemingway. Few things in life Papa Hemingway enjoyed more than boat drinking, or anywhere drinking for that matter. And by the way, if you're wondering why the sippy cup, well, if you gotta ask, perhaps you don't belong on our boat after all. Drink called the Zephyr. Interesting drink. It's uh, easy to make, refreshing, tastes like the first time you saw a monkey petting a puppy. What we're going to do for the Zephyrs, you're going to do is a ha- an ounce and a half of vodka, an ounce of pink grapefruit juice, a half ounce of fresh lemon juice, half ounce of orgeat, orgeat, that's O-R-G-E-A-T, orgeat, it's a almond liqueur, and, and some tonic. You put all those things over ice, except the tonic, and you shake it. Then you strain it into a highball glass with some fresh ice, and then you put the tonic on top. Maybe garnish it with a wedge of grapefruit. Yeah. St. Germain cocktail. It's like an Aperol spritz, only Frenchier. I'm going to use two parts champagne, dry sparkling white wine, a half an ounce and a half of St. Germain elderflower liqueur. Yum! And two parts club soda. And then finally, on the boat, you might want to do the bartender's breakfast, a.k.a. Fernet Branca. You're probably thinking, wait a minute, this isn't a cocktail. It's a hellish shot Italian liqueur containing 40% alcohol. And if you're thinking that, congratulations, you win this week's I Spotted a Misleading Headline Award. Now stop with all the thinking and slam back that fernet. You're on a freaking boat, for Christ's sakes. If you insist on additional components, have another shot and chase it with ginger ale. And just remember, folks, don't overdo it on the high seas. You might wake up feeling worse than the plot of an Adam Sandler movie. If that starts happening one too many times, you may be forced to abandon the boat in favor of the wagon. And there's not even a little alcohol in that damn thing. So Virginia. That's right, Virginia. Come out, Virginia. Don't make me wait. So Virginia was home to the first commercial winemaking venture in these United States. It started two years before it was even called the United States. The Virginia Winemaking Company was founded by a 31-year-old you might have heard of by the name of Thomas Jefferson. He was a sophisticated man. He had international taste. He enjoyed three things. 
Above all else, Thomas Jefferson, three things, American liberty, French wine, and African women. And I'm going to assume at the same time, right? But we're talking about wine here, so I'm not going to get into Sally Hemings, something Jefferson, who had six kids with her, seemed incapable of doing. And I don't want to get into political ideology here either. I'll just let you know that in 1760, Jefferson was 17 and he matriculated at William and Mary in Williamsburg. And back then, college kids like to drink as much as they do today. And over the next couple of years, TJ fell in love with two of the most notable venophiles in the colonies. There's a guy named Francis Fauquier. I pronounce, I choose to pronounce it fuck yeah. Francis fuck yeah. He was the royal governor of Virginia. And George White, who was uh, Jefferson's law school instructor. These guys both had big wine cellars, and they introduced young Thomas to the pleasures of some of these old world wines. And uh, I just, you know, he must have had an aha moment at some point. And uh, I, you know, I've had mine. I've talked about mine. I'm going to guess mine and Jefferson's aha moments were different. After his wine awakening, he wrote the Declaration of Independence and helped found America. After mine, I wrote a bunch of dick jokes and I binged watched Veep. It's like me and Jefferson are the same person, except that I have never had sex with a slave. So I think we know as the moral high ground here, TJ. All right, so over the next decade, Jefferson, his wine, he gets really into it. He builds this impressive collection of his own, of a, French, a lot of French wine, I believe. And then in 1773... One of his wine brokers swung by Monticello, that's where he lived, a famous spot in Virginia, and he brought this Italian winemaker named Philip Mazai. Now, Mazai had spent 18 years selling wine in London, and he came to the New World with the intention of cultivating old world grapes. They call it vinifera, you know, like Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Pinot Noir, that's vinifera. And he was on his way to Georgia, Augusta, Georgia, where they hold the, 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 the what is that thing called, the Masters, yeah, now. And he had a, some land that was promised to him by the Brits. But when he saw Monticello, he just was like, wow, this is primo grape growing location. And he said, screw Georgia. And he struck up a partnership with Thomas Jefferson. So he got some land and he got the assistance of Jefferson's <clears throat> uncompensated workforce in exchange for planning and maintaining vineyards at Monticello. And he was also like big on the American cause, man. He was cooking along underground at the time. He endeared himself to many of the founding fathers. A year later in 1774, when the Virginia Wine Company was born, Jefferson, George Washington, several other prominent colonists were among the financial backers. But the timing was shitty, obviously, 1774. Two years after it was founded, Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, forcing and George Washington is spending an enormous amount of time on the road and making life more than a little dicey for area winemakers. Now, by 1778, these plucky colonists, or land stealers, found themselves in pretty bad financial straits. It got so bad that they sent Mazai, who was like their bestest paisano, he was, by this point, he's an American patriot, this Italian guy. He goes back to Italy to rustle up some more money for the war effort from his rich Italian friends. So rather than a let, let Monticello lie fallow during this time, Mazai rented the place out to someone named Heinrich Riedisel, who was a Hessian general that had been captured by the Americans and was being held as a prisoner of war. Now, I know what you're thinking. The fact that, uh, you know, a POW was allowed to rent out a plush Virginia plantation is just another example of how civilized war was back then. And I'm kidding. That's wrong. 
It's, I got confused. Wars never civilized. This is an example of the fact that when you're rich, you get to do whatever the fuck you want. Now, in a development only everyone could have seen coming, it turns out Mazai Airbnb is placed to an opposition general was not the best idea. Radiesel, in a truly impressive dick move, pastured his horses in the baby vineyards that Mazai had so lovingly cared for over the previous four years, and these horses just destroyed the vineyards. In fact, Jefferson later wrote in one of his diaries that, quote, the horses in one week destroyed the whole labor of three or four years and thus ended an experiment which from very every appearance would in a year or two have established the practicability of that branch of culture in America. End quote. This imparts an important lesson. Always check that no pets box. The Virginia Wine Company would never produce a single bottle of wine, setting a new standard of productivity that government officials have been trying to live up to ever since. Now, on the plus side, Americans won the war, yeah, paving the way for Jefferson to succeed Ben Franklin as French minister. Jefferson's friends thought the change in scenery would do him good after the death of his wife, and he ended up staying in France for five years. And during that time, he took two major wine expeditions, producing important historical documentation of that period's winemaking customs, along with copious tasting notes. Apparently, I'm not the first person to think of using a wine road trip to mend a broken heart. I did that in my book, American Wino. Oh, I'd say he's a better man than I, if not for the fact that he sent for Sally Hemings three years into his trip. Whew. Thought I was losing my moral high ground there for a second. And while Jefferson's cultivation efforts failed, he was enormously influential on American taste in wine, pushing toward the drier, lower alcohol wines favored by the French and Italians, as opposed to the syrupy, high-test plunk the British liked to throw back. Jefferson was instrumental in establishing European-style wines as a staple at the White House dinners, starting with the George Washington administration. Had Mazai been given a few more years to get Monticello's grapes in shape before they were trampled by Teutonic demon horses... Who knows how much faster we might have started catching up with Europe on wine quality. Important thing, of course, is that we got there. Just took two centuries. And now we're going to hear from a couple sponsors. And then we're going to talk to a guy who is making wine in the very region that Thomas Jefferson recognized as being a hotbed for wine production all those years ago. We're going to talk to Luca Pashina. Right after these words from our sponsors. Spencers. You know, but it's not all whiskey here at What We're Drinking headquarters. A lot of times I like to drink rum. Just any rum. I'm talking about Batiste rum. The first sustainable American craft rum. I call it a 3R rum because the makers of Batiste rum practice regenerative agriculture. They use renewable energy and they make responsible choices. Batiste rum is made from 100% pure, fresh cane juice, minimal processing, single distillation. It is distilled sunshine. I'm walking on sunshine. Check out BatisteRum.com to learn more. That is B-A-T-I-S-T-E-R-H-U-M.com. That H in rum is a tip of the hat to the French Caribbean where it's sourced. And as I like to say, the H is silent, but I promise you, you won't be. You're going to be telling everybody you know to get some. It's that time of year again. 
New Year's. It's that time of year where we make those resolutions about dropping weight, answering our mom's calls, staying in touch with friends. It always feels like the perfect time to refocus on what we want in life, but it's easy to get stuck looking back on all of the resolutions we didn't keep last year. This year, there's one resolution I am definitely keeping, and that's making my mental health a priority. Make it part of your daily routine with Talkspace. Talkspace personally matches you with a licensed therapist you could connect with right from your phone or computer. I've been in therapy for years, but it's always been so challenging to find the right person. I've bounced around to different therapists and it's always, does this one take my insurance? Is this one close to my house? With Talkspace, you can do it from the comfort of your own home. Listen, everyone could use someone to talk to. I personally deal with some anxiety and my problem at night is those racing thoughts that I can't turn off. I'm up all hours of the night thinking about everything that everyone ever said to me and how am I going to get through this? My therapist at Talkspace taught me some really awesome breathing techniques that help me calm my mind, calm my body, and give me a more restful sleep. Connecting with a licensed therapist on Talkspace can help you feel better and it's secure. No one's going to hear what you say and that's the best part. Let all that talk fly. Unlike traditional therapy, Talkspace fits your schedule, not the other way around. Talkspace treats your privacy and security as their top priority. You get access to private virtual room with just you and your therapist. You can send your therapist messages 24-7 and get replies throughout the day. No need to wait for that weekly appointment. You owe it to yourself to make mental health a priority this year. And Talkspace makes it easy to keep. Visit Talkspace.com and get $100 off your first month when you use promo code STARBURNS at sign up. That's S-T-A-R-B-U-R-N-S. That's $100 off at Talkspace.com, promo code STARBURNS. Seven years ago, as regular listeners to this show know, I drove around the United States for about three and a half months visiting wineries from sea to shining sea. And whenever people ask me about my favorite spots, outside of the usual suspects in in Northern California and Oregon, I always, one of the first wineries I mention is Barbersville in Virginia, in Barbersville, Virginia. And joining me now, I'm, I'm thrilled, I'm just thrilled to be here with him, is the winemaker for Barbersville, Luca Pacina. How are you, Luca? I'm doing really well. It's great to see you, man. It was seven years ago. We sat right here in this winery, and I got introduced to your wines, and it was beautiful. And, and I, as I say, I'm, I'm really excited because I'm back on the road again. I've been holed up in the house for 14 months, and to be here at this beautiful winery is great, and I appreciate you having us out. Absolutely. Thank you for coming. And you know what? We still look the same. We do. We haven't aged. And the wines aged. are improving. <laughs> That's right. I mean, you you do – so obviously, if you haven't picked it up yet, Luca's Italian. So you, you cut your teeth making wine over in Italy, right? Tell us a little bit about – Yes. That. I <clears throat> I was born in Torino in the northwest of Italy, just an hour west of the French border in a family of winemakers. My father, my uncle, they were winemakers, graduated uh, in a school in Alba. I ended up actually going to the same school they did, and I really grew into it. Uh, 
Uh, I have also two other brothers. One study as a winemaker, and then he ended up opening uh, a restaurant. My other brother instead, he wanted nothing to do with winemaking, and he lives in Milan. For myself, really, was of a, 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 an eye-opening moment. I was 14 years old. My father really suggested me to come work with him for the summer. And he let me bake, basically make my first uh, big uh, batch of Nebbiolo in a quite sizable tank. I said, you're not in charge of this wine. This is going to be the first wine that you make on your own. And I just, uh, it was fascinating. And I chose at that point, at the end of that month, I worked with him to go to winemaking school in Alba. Beautiful. So when did you come to the States? I came in the United States for the first time, actually in 1985. For I spent a whole year as an intern for the company I was working for, and I spent six months in Napa Valley at Christian Brother, uh, which was still existing back then. They folded, I think, in 87 or so. And then I did six months in the Finger Lakes in Naples, in, New York. In New York. That's as right. an intern. And then who knew that and then I went back to Italy. And then uh, later on in uh, 1990, I started working on my own as a consultant. And the first uh, client that approached me was the family that uh, started this estate in 1976, the Zurich family. So I landed here in July of 1990 the first time. And so everybody knows where we are. Barbersville, kind of central Virginia, near Charlottesville. So I got to imagine, I, I thought this before I came here years ago, Virginia wine. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a sort of a hidden gem, I think, in this country, right? When you think about the the, the primo winemaking regions of America, you obviously think the Napa Valley, you think Willamette Valley in Oregon, you think Washington State, you mentioned the Finger Lakes. Wouldn't you say, where would you put Virginia in that mix? Uh, Virginia, <clears throat> in that mix, I put it into... A category on its own, in a way, because it's actually a very challenging uh, weather here. It's uh, much more so continental, like it's Europe, where I'm from, than other climates you find on the West Coast. For that reason, it took a little bit longer to develop, to find some people that really knew how to deal with our weather patterns and interpret what type of uh, approach in viticulture and winemaking should apply to here. I remember when I came in 1990, some winemakers here in Virginia, they were looking at the standard California, the style of wine in California. They were, trying, they were in a way emulating or trying to follow those wines, and that was a big mistake. Uh, you have to follow the style of winemaking according to your weather and your soil. And here it is very European. So for me, actually, it was not that complicated. Uh, I just have to put into uh, work what I learned from where I'm from. And uh, with this said, I positioned Virginia uh, right into the top states, for sure, in, the, in, in America. Of course, some have a long track record, like California from the 1800s. And then Washington, Oregon are, are very recent as recent as Virginia, but Virginia really had the hurdle of having a difficult weather, more difficult weather condition patterns with uh, uh, winemakers that at the beginning were more an, uh, approaching as an amateurial uh, 
type of uh, endeavor, not as very uh, more, I say, more scientific and dedicated uh, approach. And one of the things people out there might not know is Virginia was the first place where someone tried to cultivate vinifera, which are the the old, the classic grapes, your Cabernet. And do we know who that person was? We do know who that person was. Indeed, yes. Uh, there are very good records uh, of uh, the first uh, systematic plantings done by Thomas Jefferson in the late 1700s. Uh, the last of the seven planting was done in 1807. None of them produced any grapes, Why? and Jefferson is drawing uh, in his writings laments that I wish I could put my hands on some clusters and make a bottle of wine. So he never was able to make a bottle of wine from European grapes. But not for lack of effort, right? No, for sure. It's just that uh, <clears throat> at, at the root of the problem is that there is a disease here on the East Coast and the, and the central part of the United States, which is called phylloxera, which almost almost destroyed California not long ago because the rootstock was developed that was not resistant. American vines actually thrive in nature here, and this insect lives in symbiosis with this plant. And uh, so Jefferson, whenever he planted European vines, they were killed by these uh, insects that was never been observed at that point yet. The same uh, insect almost destroyed all of viticulture in Europe because European people... They tasted Concord, which is a beautiful, uh, aromatic grape, very good to eat. And, and you can make some, actually some wines that are quite good, very aromatic. To them was a really cool thing. So they brought cuttings of Concord to Europe. With it, they brought the insect and, they sp and the insect spread very rapidly all over Europe. And this insect kills European vine through the root system. Yeah. So Jefferson, in essence, brought all these grapes here into this uh, foreign and place loaded with this insect. And of course they killed, they killed all the European vines. It's amazing to think that some little tiny micro, what's the, uh, it is a little tiny thing tiny that insect, can spread yeah. and change the whole world. Any examples of that recently? Uh, oh, wait, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So I got to tell you the the wines here, they are delicious, and I'm looking at one in front of me, and what, what do we call in this one? Well, we do produce a few really great wines. Perhaps our most iconic red wine we produce is Octagon, is our Bordeaux blend. Uh, Merlot and Cabernet Franc has been written by national, international press as a great example of a great Bordeaux-style wine. Yet my heart lies into a different grape. Nebbiolo, I'm from Piemont. This is the grape uh, I grew up. This is the grape, actually, I, for the first time when I was 14 year old, I made wine with. And uh, so I think I'm with gonna you, I'm going to share a little right Nebbiolo. And uh, I should let everybody know that Luca, that was Luca's idea. He said, I, I, I asked him to pour the wine before we started. He says, no, no, we need to get the sound effect. Bringing <laughs> him a, on to it produce. It just sounds so sexy. <laughs> it really does. Here we go. Let's get the glass. <laughs> there we go. All and right. so. Give me, uh, Luca, give me, <clears throat> give me a pointer here for everybody yeah. out there. All right, I'm nosing the wine. Walk me through it. How do I nose this wine? What do the, I do? The aroma, the aromatics. Yeah. So well, the I aromatics of Nebbiolo are always very, very intense. 
the first thing that is beautiful the, about Nebbiolo is the color. It has a deep ruby color. It's never very deep, but it really has that bright ruby, typical of Nebbiolo. The aromatics are always very effu- effusively fragrant. At a young stage, it has a lot of violet, very floral. It has some uh, some um, great uh, uh, ripe red fruit. But what it becomes then more and more intriguing in Nebbiolo is as it goes into aging. And it's one of the varietals of grapes that really has the most beautiful evolution. And uh, beside that, Nebbiolo is always very refreshing, has a very bright natural acidity, is astringent. But even in a lesser growing season, what I like about Nebbiolo, the tannins are always, uh, they actually are never bitter. There's never any bitterness in Nebbiolo. So it's, in a way, I compare it to Pinot Noir, or like I, I can actually, if I were in Burgundy, I can compare Pinot Noir to Nebbiolo. I'm not saying that uh, Pinot Noir is a greater grape. I'm just saying they both are some of the most fascinating grapes. Okay. And they're also, they still produce fascinating wines in a, what we call a lesser season a season a bit shorter with sun, a, little, a season with a bit more rain, still makes a beautiful wine. And so for that reason, I planted it, not knowing that if it would work here. So I had to wait. The first vintage we produced it was 1998, and we're still drinking 98 vintage today, and the wine is impeccably beautiful. That's what I was going to say to you. So this one here... We got, which is, del- it's this 2017 and it's delicious, but I can, you know, it, you, you definitely, it's a young wine. You can feel what, if I picked up a bottle of this, how long could I hold on to this? How long do you think this thing would? Well, from my experience, from uh, what we have in our cellar, I'm drinking wine from the ni- uh, late nineties, early two thousands, okay. and they're still in perfect shape. So I say easy 20 years. Easy 20 yeah. years. I mean, people always wonder about that. Like, how how do how do you know? Is it just like learning how v- different grape varietals tend to age? Because people always ask me, when should I drink this? And I generally I don't know. A lot of times, is it? I, I develop an answer for that, okay. and it's kind of it sounds a bit quirky, but there is a truth to behind it. When people ask me when should I drink it, I say on a Wednesday. <laughs> the worst if you hear the S answer, uh, you know, on a Thursday, you have to wait. Uh, six days. So what I'm saying is that there is, of course, a better window. Uh, There is a better Wednesday for you to open that bottle of wine. But then there is a personal preference to drink wines that are a bit younger in its its age, or actually they're more developed. Uh, On Nebbiolo, I would say best is to pick a Wednesday, you know, in a couple years from now. But then to give you an exact window, I don't, I don't, you I don't like that. People okay. say, "Oh, it peaks at uh, in 2023, and then what? And then it stays there. It goes down. It's I don't find it as constructive as picking an exact date of of the peak of when you have to drink it." Well, there, you know, people get precious about wines, especially when they spend. You know, they buy an they buy an expensive wine. Well, I'm going to hold on to this. I'm going to sit on it. My my fear is always like, you know, I'm, I'm out on a boating trip or something and the ship's going down and I'm going to be sitting on the ship and I'm going to go, damn it. 
I have all this. Why didn't I drink? <laughs> you know, why didn't I drink that that DRC that I've been saving? You know, like seriously, that's what would bother me. So I really do get. I'm I, I, there's. I'm being humorous about it, but but the truth of it is, like, I I have you know I have a cup a bunch of wine fridges at home, and I look at some of these bottles. And go, why am I waiting? Why am I waiting? Like, I want to drink it. I want to taste this wine now. I have a few bottles in, the, in my cellar where I, I grab them, I look at them, and put them back. You and have some restraint. Them a few times, but then you know what? At one point, you have to open that, pull that cork, you know? So where do you see things going? Uh, if you, you Earlier, before we got on the show, you and I were talking a little bit about weather, climate's changing, things are happening. What does that mean, do you think, long-term for Virginia wine? What's happening with it? With, is it good, bad? We are, in a way, we're a bit more um, out of the, of, the, of, of, the, of, the, of the overall shifting in climate condition. Let me put it this way. I know that where I'm from in Italy, in Piemonte, when I came, when I when I graduate, graduated from school in 1982, we were picking the Biolo in mid-October. That was the time where pretty much was happening. Now it's about second, third week in September. So clearly there's a pattern there in Europe where we're picking three weeks ahead. It's getting hotter. It used to be. It's yes. getting hotter, okay, yeah. Here in Virginia, it's a bit different because we are at the mercy of the jet stream. We have a year is bone dry, a year is wet, and a year is perfect. So the jet stream really is shifting uh, quite a bit. So we don't have that big of a difference in time of picking. The one thing I noticed here in Virginia that that it ha- it is shifting and changing toward uh, something that I haven't seen 32 years ago is the spring. I am an avid uh, picker of moral mushrooms and they're very demanding with weather way more than grapes because their season is very short i see a pattern of the spring being very short you go you go from spring to summer you go from 70s to 90s sometime in a heartbeat that you never go back to the 70s back when i came in the 90s were more gradual warm up of the spring beside that uh, i haven't seen a dramatic change but that is clearly for me the the the, what i've been noticing well luca again it is a real thrill to be back on this beautiful property i tell everybody out there if you ever get a chance to come to barbersville it they have an amazing inn here It, it is so picturesque it really is and it's a big property there's a you got a lot of room for wine tasting out here you've got a barn out there you've got the ruins of a, of a building that Thomas Jefferson designed is right here on the property, very famous site. And uh, and the wines are terrific, and you've got a lot of them. You've got how many different labels of wine are for offered for tasting? Well, we, we grow 18 different kind of grapes. Some are just for more pro, small production, like for, we do a dessert wine with Moscato and Vidal, for example. And... Uh, and so uh, it's 180 acres of grapes. And what I said uh, when some people say, well, why do you grow so many things? I say, well, it's like you go to a great restaurant. You, they, don't, they don't only have three or four dishes you can pick from. Uh, we have a great staff or, or people that are super skilled for many years have been in the vineyard with us. 
So we have been really uh, working with the land. We have uh, 180 acres out of 900 acres of a state with different slope, different soil, soil profile. So we really are adapting different variety to the specific sites. And, and you know, and that, and that's how, that's how you can produce a great wine. If you continue to work the soil for a period of time and you observe and from observation, you determine what changes you can do. And then you can really grow if you do that as a farmer. And that's what we are. Any sound we should go out with here? Or since you're, you, you, should we do the ching? Should there, Let's do know, one more. One more ching. Clang. Oh, it's working. Look at that. It sounds good. <laughs> thank you for Luca Machina, thank you, man. Barbersville Vineyards, everybody check it out. And we'll be right back. And now, a word from one of our dream sponsors, Lowenbrow Beer, circa 1982. To good friends. Do you guys realize this is our fourth summer place together? Remember that old beach house we had? How about the time you two almost set the woods on fire? <laughs> okay, who's ready for a lower brow? When you want the taste of a truly great American beer, tonight, let it be low and brow. You know, I think we finally got this down to our heart. Let it be low and brow. All right. Before I settle my tab and get out of here, a couple of new products to tell you about. We're going to start with something from Livewire Drinks. Livewire Drinks is a canned cocktail company founded by my friend, bartender Aaron Polsky. Those of you familiar with the L.A. bar scene will know Aaron from Harvard and Stone. And he's got a new uh, new bottled cocktail out that he did in conjunction with another old dear friend of mine, bar industry icon, Chris Patino, and it's called the Alley Cat Old Fashion. It's a thing that's been years in the making. And here's the thing. Chris Patino got diagnosed a while back with pancreatic cancer. And uh, people, they were selling hats. Uh, I heart Patino. I bought one to sort of support. Chris is a, just a fucking trooper, man. And he's hanging in there. He's, he has not slowed down. He's still working. He's got a a renowned bar down in San Diego called Raised by Wolves. He's still running that. He's still doing the drinks thing. He's got this alley cat old-fashioned that he did with Aaron. A little bit more about Chris. You know, he's a spirits educator, brand consultant, former award-winning ambassador for Pernod Ricard. As I said, he's a co-owner of Raised by Wolves. He's also working right now with The Rock, Dwayne The Rock Johnson on Terramana Tequila, a bunch of other labels for Campari. He's a hero, man. That's all. That's all I'm saying. So uh, he and Aaron Polsky did this. I'm looking at it right now. The Alley Cat Old Fashioned. It's made with two years straight rye whiskey and apple brandy from Ventura Spirits, which is out here in California. It's balanced with bitter cube, cherry bark, vanilla bitters. It is just warm and toasty, oaky. It's got some orchard top notes. You just pop it open. You pour it in. It's ready to go right from the bottle. The name is an an ode to Polsky's Cats. Night Train and Mr. Brownstone, Guns N' Roses fans might recognize where that came from. The bottle is really cool. It features artwork donated by renowned illustrator Mark Ryhill, who's a good friend of Chris. Mark did uh, the illustrated the menus at the Dead Rabbit in New York, a very, very famous bar. As a uh, testament to, to Chris's career-long commitment to giving back, a portion of the proceeds from the sales of Alley Cat Old Fashioned will be donated to a charity to aid in the fight against pancreatic cancer 
It's 39% ABV. It comes in 375 milliliter bottles. It's available at retailers in New York, New Jersey, Texas, and California. And online, they will ship to 46 states. Go to livewiredrinks.com. You follow Livewire on social media at livewiredrinks and do it. It's for good cause and it's a hell of a great drink. And of course, you can't live on old fashions alone. How about a little wine? I just had a wine that I'm really digging. It's, it's called Double Diamond 2018 Cabernet Sauvignon. It's a delicious wine produced and bottled by Schrader Cellars in Oakville, Napa Valley. Oh, man. Just a rich character driven Cabernet. It's got it's got some Mexican chocolate, nutmeg, violets, it's it's it did black currant, blackberry reduction, all spice. It's a oh sleek, sexy wine. Double diamond 2018 Cabernet Sauvignon. It is eighty dollars a bottle, but like I always say to you, my friends, you're worth it. You're worth it. Don't sell yourself short. Go get that wine. And finally, very interesting product. Got Sent to me, and I had a little party. It's it's a, it's a company called Nipiata. Nipiata is a company that does booze-filled pinatas. That's right. So they sent me one in National Tequila Day. I guess is coming up on July twenty fourth. So they sent me a margarita yada. It was filled. They have fifteen bottles, are preloaded into this thing, and you know you got the stick that you swing and you hit it and it opens and. It, the, the 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 margaritas come out the out of the nipiata. <laughs> it's funny. I don't know, man. It was fun. I had a good time with it. I had it out in the yard. Had some people over, and we did it. It's it's hundred and ten bucks, but there's plenty of booze in there. They're fifteen fifty milliliter plastic mini bottles. Nips, hence the name, nipiata. You get what they're do? Do you get where they're going with this, people? Do you see? Do you, do you smell what The Rock is cooking? Oh, no, wait, that's that's Chris Patino's thing. He's working with The Rock. But you get it. You get it all ties in. So we got the Double Diamond Wine, the Alley Cat Old Fashioned, and the Nippiata. Those are the three things I'm, I'm, I'm offering up to you this week, my friends, on this, the 135th episode of What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. <sighs> that's all I got. I got nothing. I want to thank Luke Pashina for, for joining me. I want to thank Thomas Jefferson for all he did for wine in this country. I want to thank you, folks. Uh, follow me at the imbiber at WWD underscore podcast. Drop me a line. And have a wonderful rest of the day. 